Well, when I first became a Christian, I joined a church where there was a lot of excitement and exuberance on a Sunday morning. And it was felt good to go to church. It felt like when I'd go to church that I was elevated into a higher and deeper spiritual experience than I had been accustomed to between Monday and Saturday. And, and Sundays, Sundays felt real good and everybody was excited and everybody was exuberant and everybody was enthusiastic on Sundays. And uh, it, it really felt good as a new Christian to go to church on Sundays and experience that elevated passion and that elevated excitement. But one of the things that I became quickly disillusioned with was the way that I would crash afterward, like even like Sunday afternoon, forget even Monday or Tuesday, but it was like we'd walk out of there and it was kind of like, well, where, where is the life? Where is the vigor? Where is the vitality? And what I came to see was that the church that I was a part of really was, it was more hype than true spiritual intensity. See, we can get hyped about anything, right? We can, we, we can create a lot of hype surrounding an event or uh, a, lot of, a lot of hype even about a sporting event. We can go somewhere and see people play cricket or see people play football. We can get ourselves excited, but it doesn't really fundamentally change us. It doesn't really fundamentally impact us and, and shape us and mold us. Hype is just, you're just going along and then, and then through, whether it's great rhetoric or whether it's through high quality music or whatever it may be, some external stimuli gets you fired up. And so you get excited, but then when the external stimuli is gone, you kind of come back down to normal. And what I realized was eventually was that this church that I was a part of was really, it was more hype than substance, more, more just a flash in the pan. I've said to my wife, attending that church was like my spiritual life all of a sudden became on fire every Sunday. But it was, it was on fire every Sunday because the leadership of the church would pour gasoline on. And so everything would just fire up on Sundays. But then, you know what happens when you pour gasoline on a fire? Two seconds later, the fire's cooling down again. Right, because gasoline ignites a fire, but gasoline doesn't really sustain a fire. It burns away quickly. And so, Attending that church was like having my spiritual life fired up by gasoline every Sunday. And it did not sustain me, often through, even through the rest of Sunday, let alone through the rest of the week, and let alone uh, give me a good, solid foundation for the rest of my life. Listen, good, solid doctrine is like wood. Good, solid doctrine is like logs. Week after week, when we come and we look at the scriptures and we try to draw out from the scriptures what is actually there, and we try to understand sound doctrine that's derived from the scripture, it's like logs of wood that we're throwing on the fire. 
See, it's not like gasoline, like this, let's just get fired up real quick. It's like, let's actually build a strong and lasting and stable fire that's gonna burn hot and it's gonna burn consistently and it's gonna burn for the rest of our lives. And in fact, as we throw log after log on, week after week, it's gonna get hotter. As the psalmist says, the saints, the old aged saints are like the cedars of Lebanon. You see, or as Paul said, outwardly, outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Good, solid doctrine is like throwing log after log on the fire so that that fire gets hotter and hotter as our outward bodies waste away. Inwardly, the fire is burning hotter and hotter until we go and be with our Lord Jesus Christ and see Him face to face. Good, solid doctrine is like logs that we throw on the fire. Now, what if you have a whole pile of logs, but no fire? Is it hot? No, it's not hot. Right? So, what we need to do is understand, and, and I'm kind of pressing an analogy here, and every analogy is going to break down, but what we need to do is we need to make sure that there are actually logs and not just gasoline. You understand that we're not just here to get one another hyped up and just work ourselves into a frenzy on Sundays with very little substance and then send ourselves back out to scatter into our families and our workplaces and so on and so forth with no substance to sustain us. But what we also need to do is make sure that we're not just coming here and just piling up logs. What we need to be doing when we're coming here is stoking a fire. You see, those who burn the hottest, those who are on fire for Christ the most, ought to be those who understand clearly and truly what it is that the Scripture says about God. People who see God most clearly. The people who understand what it is that the Scripture says about ourselves. What, who are we? What is our relationship to God? What has God done for us? What are the obligations that we owe to Him? The people who ought to be the most fired up for God ought not to be those who are in churches that are full of hype and gasoline. The people who are truly most fired up for God ought to be those in churches where a log is getting thrown on the fire week after week after week. And if we're piling up logs and piling up logs, but there's no heat, there's no warmth, there's no fire, something is wrong with our spirituality. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. We've been looking at Paul's wonderful and soul-stirring exposition of the gospel. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one sentence in the Greek. So Paul is just, he just starts and he just can't stop. He's talking about uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit and their gracious works to save us from our sin and he just it's like he rambles because he's so excited he's not speaking in a thoughtful and measured way he's he's just pouring out his heart the overflow of his heart in praise this whole thing is a doxology it starts blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and it just goes from there it's this beautiful exposition of the gospel and we've been unpacking that over the last few weeks and we have 
thrown a lot of logs on the fire. We've actually covered a lot in the last three weeks. We've talked about the covenant of redemption, where God the Father gave a people to the Son in eternity past and appointed Him as mediator to accomplish their salvation for them. We talked about the covenant of works, which was made with Adam, whereby Adam was appointed as a representative for all mankind. And when he sinned, we sinned in him and incurred guilt and corruption. We talked about the covenant of grace or the new covenant, where, where Christ Jesus fulfills the terms of the covenant of redemption and comes in time and space to actually do the work that God gave him in eternity past. He, he becomes one of us. He incarnates and he lives a righteous life and he dies a sin-bearing, punishment-bearing death and he raises from the grave and he ascends to the Father's right hand to reign forevermore. We've talked about all of those covenants which form the backbone of Scripture. We've talked about total depravity. We've talked about unconditional election. We've talked about limited atonement. We've talked about irresistible grace. We've talked about the perseverance of the saints. All of these biblical doctrines that we see right here in Ephesians 1, 3-14. We've actually talked about a lot over just the last three weeks. And these things are wood. These things will sustain the fire. I can vouch for that. The fire has been burning in me for several years now on the fuel of these things. These things are worth building a life on. These things, these biblical truths will sustain you. When, when these things are what your soul is resting in and taking hold of and believing in, it will sustain a fire. But in order for these things to get a fire going and to sustain a fire, they need to get into the heart. And that's what Paul prays for the Ephesians. He comes off this exposition of the gospel in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And he prays for the Ephesians that these truths will get into their hearts. He says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. For you. So he hears that these people have become Christians. They've understood the message of the gospel. They've rested their souls upon Christ. Now they're, they're Christians and they're growing in Christ Jesus. What does he pray for? For first he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And if there was any question of whether um, salvation was by works or by grace, the fact that he gives thanks to God for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should be an indicator. Right? So first of all, again, he just hammers home what we've been talking about the last three weeks. When somebody comes to faith, it's because God has been gracious to that person in electing them and sending Christ Jesus to bleed and to die for their sins and in sending the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith. That's why Paul can say, hey, I heard you guys came to faith, so I thank God for that. Right? But he goes on to pray, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Knowledge. He's praying for knowledge for these Christians. 
And we should bear in mind here that in Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul taught there for almost two years. And according to some ancient manuscripts, it gives us the times of day that he taught 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So Paul was already in Ephesus for two years teaching for five hours a day. Right? And he says, I pray for knowledge. You see what I'm saying? So these guys are not, these guys are not sort of rookies in terms of basic doctrines. This is not what Paul is praying for. He goes on to say, I pray that the Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, obviously, they had the eyes of their hearts enlightened a certain amount, or they couldn't have become Christians. Even we talked about last week. You can't, you can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. Right? You can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of God until God says, let light shine out of darkness. Right? And takes away the blindness that the God of this world has put upon the unbeliever. Right? So they've obviously had the eyes of their heart enlightened a certain amount. But Paul is praying for Christians that they'll know these things in their heart more and more. That these things will work their way into the fiber of the Ephesians' souls, their very being. That all of these truths that he stood there and taught them for five hours a day for two years would get more and more into their hearts. That the things that he just said in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, would get more and more into their hearts. He prays to God over and over again. He says, I always, I'm remembering you in my prayers. I do not cease. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I'm always praying that God the Father, by God the Spirit, would help work these things into your hearts. That the eyes of your hearts would be further and further Enlightened, that you would get these things more and more in your hearts. Paul has given them lots and lots of propositional truth. And now he prays to God that God, by His Spirit, would work that propositional truth into their hearts. And Paul wants their hearts to know three particular things we see in this passage. Verse 18, what is the hope to which He has called you? Secondly, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Those are the three things that Paul wants them to work into their hearts. So let's begin trying to work these things into our hearts. And Even as I prayed before, I started preaching that the Holy Spirit would work these things into our hearts. What is the hope to which God has called us that needs to be worked into our hearts? Well, if we turn back to verse 10, God has a plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is when we are no longer disintegrated beings, when this is no longer a disintegrated world, but when the disintegration and the disunity of this world that has been caused by sin is undone and all things are integrated in Christ Jesus, united in Christ Jesus, 
at the end of all things, then God's plan will have been fully accomplished. That is the end to which God is driving history. That all things will be reunited, reintegrated in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 10, we see that. It's one thing to get that intellectually, but as Paul prays for the Ephesians, and as as I was praying for you last night and this morning, and as I prayed just before I preached, oh, that God will get that beyond our minds only, and that He will work it into our hearts. Think about that. Think about the unification of all things in Christ Jesus at the end. That's the hope to which He has called us. That's the end to which all things are driving. The scripture says, who hopes for what he already has? The hope to which he has called us refers, therefore, to future things. And the the undoing of the curse that came upon us and came upon this world in Adam. And uh, the restoration. And in fact, the glorification, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the end will be better than the beginning. Think about that. What will it be like to live in a world where, as Revelation 21 says, all things are new? What will it be like to live in a world where we no longer battle against sin? What will it be like to just wake up in the morning and not have that daily struggle with the flesh, but to love God and to love one another perfectly as we ought to? Think about the relationships that we have with one another, which are sometimes outright broken, severed. We are at enmity with one another, other human beings, because of sin. Hopefully it's not our sin. Romans says that we should live at peace with one another insofar as it depends upon us. Right? If, if we are, have broken relationships because of our sin, we need to repent and go reconcile that. But sometimes we have relationships that are broken or severed or at least limited, at least impeded by the sin of others. Think about what it will be like to live in a world where neither our sin nor the sin of other people impedes our relationships. And we have the kind of relationships with one another that we ought to. Relationships where we can not fear to be known. Where we can let ourselves be known and trust that the other person is not going to use us or abuse us or, or you know, go, go tell someone else something that we've shared with them in confidence. None of this stuff. Fellowship with one another that is unhindered and unfettered by sin. And then have you ever had a taste of real sweet fellowship with God? I've had occasions where it feels for a moment or or sometimes a few moments, but sometimes just for a split second, where it just feels like heaven just opens to you. And it's just you feel this intense communion with God. You feel a sense of His love for you. And you, you feel a sense of love for Him that is abnormal. Right? There's, a cons- there's a consistent love for God in Christians. That's the definition of Christianity. But, but oftentimes it just feels impeded by our sin. It feels colder than it ought to be. It feels not what it should be. And from time to time, we catch a glimpse of God's love for us and our love for Him that feels something like the way it ought to be. Imagine for eternity, for eternity, 
On that day when our bodies are raised up from the grave. And we are like Him. For we see Him as He is, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And we are no longer inhibited in our communion with God by our sin. We perceive His love for us as we are. And we love Him as we are. Think about that. Think about what a wonderful hope that is to which He has called us. Think about a world in which the lame are no longer lame. Where those who have mobility issues no longer have mobility issues. Where the deaf are no longer deaf. Where there are no more need for hearing aids. Where no one wears glasses anymore. Think about a world where there are no hospital beds. Where you never again need to go in and hold someone's hand by their bedside. And bring comfort of the hope that is to come. Because it will be there. It's not going to be any longer a future hope. It's going to be like, wow, isn't this great? Right? Nobody is laying in hospital beds anymore. Nobody is hobbling along anymore. Nobody is straining to hear anymore. Nobody is straining to see anymore. Right? A world where we no longer lack. Right? Where there is no longer the anxiety month to month of where is our rent coming from or how are we going to buy groceries. or whatever. A world where it is plenitude and bounty all the time where we have what we need. Just think, just do you ever just meditate on heaven? Because if we're going to have the eyes of our hearts in life, then we might know at a heart level what is the hope to which He has called us. These are the things that we got to bring to mind. What does God mean when He says that He has a plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth? We've got to give some thought to what that is and what that means. We've got to spend some time looking at that. We've got to spend some time trying to understand that. We've got to spend some time just daydreaming about that. And just longing for that. And just wishing for that. And that's how we're going to get the eyes of our hearts enlightened. The Holy Spirit works through the Word. Not apart from propositional truth, but through the propositional truth. Working its way deeper and deeper into our being. We've got to get the hope to which He has called us in our mind's eye or in our mind's mouth, as it were, and chew it up, chew it over, and swallow it, and taste it, and savor it. And then, and then uh, swallow it and digest it. Right? This is what we've got to do with these truths. Oh, that we would know the hope to which He has called us. And then the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants us to have the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's the way the sentence reads if you take out the previous clause. That's what He's saying. He wants us to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, to know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, first I just want to say this, and this is a beautiful point. When it says His in verse 18, who is it talking about? Paul? Or the Ephesian church? Or, look at it. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? God. So do you see what this passage calls us? 
this passage calls us God's glorious inheritance. He, Paul is praying that we would know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Namely, the saints. Wow. That's an amazing truth. And Paul just, that's actually not even the main point that Paul is making in verse 18. He just, it's just his little pet name for the saints. God's glorious inheritance. I, I pray, I want you to know the riches that are yours. Right? That's what he's saying. That's his main point. But the way he says his main point is, I want you to know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. You. What are your riches? Right? That's not even Paul's main point, but just think about that. This scripture calls us God's glorious inheritance. Wow. That's amazing. Psalm chapter 2. God says, God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Your heritage. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. God says that He is bringing many sons to glory. He's making us His own. Hebrews 8 and verse 10. It's it's a promise of the new covenant which Hebrews 8 tells us has been fulfilled in Christ. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, the Lord owns us. He, like, I don't mean He owns us in terms of He has a right over us. He certainly does, but I mean he, He's not ashamed to call us His own. He calls us His sons. Right? We can look back even in Ephesians chapter 1 and see that. Right? In verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons. God has made us His own. We are His glorious inheritance. Wow, that's amazing. So, back to Paul's main point. He says, I want you to see the riches, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches, in other words, what are the riches of the saints? What riches do the saints possess? What riches do the people of God possess? Remember when we read in Scripture, the word saints, we're not talking about a select few Christians who have done wonderful things or withdrawn into a desert and whipped themselves or something like that. When we read the word saints, we're talking about Christians, believers. What are the riches of believers? What are the riches of God's people? Well, Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So our riches are widespread. Our riches are every our riches encompass every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Does that sound like mediocre riches or a little bit of riches? I mean, we might amass for ourselves two or three million dollars, but compared to some, two or three million dollars is nothing. Right? God has blessed us, Ephesians 1, 3 says, with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. So, when we think about it like that, are we rich people or poor people? We are rich. We are profoundly rich. We have every spiritual blessing. To name just a few, we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins, as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 7. Our sins are gone. They're dealt with. 
the penalty has been meted out to Christ on our behalf. So we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have this commitment from God to make us holy. Verse chapter 1 and verse 4, we see that He has predestined us, He has chosen us in order to be holy and blameless before Him. So we have this promise of God, this commitment of God. God has undertaken our sanctification. That we have the riches of holiness. The riches of increasingly unfettered communion with God. That more and more we would be free of these things that kill us. These things that suck away our joy. These things that destroy and shrivel up our souls. And more and more we would be able to walk in holiness and life and light and increasing communion with God. Just a, those are just a couple of things that we see in Ephesians 1. And then, even as I just alluded to, if we belong to God, He also belongs to us. Hebrews 8.10 I will be their God, and they will be my people. God Himself. God Himself is our greatest treasure. God Himself is our most central, the centerpiece of our riches, is God Himself. He has given us His Holy Spirit, chapter 1 and verse 14 says, as the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance. And He intends to give us, in due time, the fullness of Himself. This is amazing. Christ died to bring us to God, First Peter says. The righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So, we need to think about these things. The fact that my sins are gone. My sins are gone. That we sing sometimes. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Right? That's the language of someone who's been meditating on this. Who's been thinking about the riches of justification. The riches that He has in redemption through Christ's blood. Died He for me. Who caused His pain for me. Who Him to death pursued. This is amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This is the language of someone who's been meditating on the propositional truth and has been having the eyes of his heart enlightened. This is the guy, this is a guy who's not just piling up logs, but this is a guy who is stoking a fire. See, and this is what we gotta be doing too. We gotta be taking logs and stacking them one on top of the other in order that there may be a fire in our hearts that burns hotter and hotter. Power is the third thing that Paul prays that they're going to have the eyes of their heart enlightened to see. He wants us to know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. God wants us to know that. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? And what Paul does is he talks about the way that God has demonstrated His power. He spends actually verses 20 to 23 talking about the way that God has demonstrated His power. So these are um, propositional truths about how God has used His power that Paul is saying he hopes that we're going to understand just how immeasurable the greatness of that power is. So let's look at 
how God's power has worked, and then let's understand how His power is turned toward us who believe, that we might have the eyes of our heart enlightened, as Paul prays. Look at, look at the Scriptures here. Look at verse 20. God's power worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Now, don't gloss over that. We're used to hearing about the resurrection. But listen, God has power to raise people from the dead. God has power to raise people from the dead. No one else has that power. No one else has that power. Medical professionals don't have that power. No one can go three days after someone has been buried and dig up the grave and raise them. No one can do that. There is nothing that can be done to resurrect someone from the dead. No one can raise the dead but God. But God demonstrated His power in raising Christ from the dead. Don't let the familiarity of this resurrection story breed apathy in your heart. Just think about that. The Bible teaches that Jesus died and then He was buried and then He was raised from the dead. That's amazing power. And God has power to accomplish His purposes though hell itself stands in the way. Look at verses 21 and 22. He has seated Christ Jesus in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Scholars debate exactly what these things mean. They at least mean earthly kings and powers, for sure. Like in our day and age, Prime Minister Stewart or President Trump or uh, Vladimir Putin or whoever, right? It at least means that Christ Jesus is above them. But I think convincingly the way that these terms are used in the New Testament, it also refers to angelic beings. This means that <laughs> Satan did his worst. Satan did his worst at the cross. Right? We understand that, that when rulers of Jerusalem were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed, they gathered together to do what God's hand, uh, what God had decreed and predestined to accomplish. That's what Acts chapter 4 tells us. Right? So ultimately, it was God who crucified Jesus for our sin. Right? But listen, the evil rulers of Jerusalem gathered together to do that because they hated Jesus. And Satan, we read, Satan entered Judas when Judas went to betray Jesus. Not a demon entered Judas. Satan entered Judas. Satan, the principal demon. He's just a demon. Right? I'm not, that's not the contrast I'm trying to draw, but I'm just trying to say the, the principal demon, right? the most important, as it were, of the demons, entered Judas in order to send Jesus to the cross. You see? And Jesus died and was buried. Right? And the, the evil rulers in Jerusalem, came and said, we don't want a story to spread that Jesus rose from the dead. So, we want you to station a guard there. 
And so the Romans put a guard at the tomb. Right? So evil men, the most powerful empire in the world, and presumably, though we don't read it explicitly, Satan and the demons themselves all wanted Jesus to stay in that tomb. But what does it say? God raised Him from the dead, and not only did He raise Him from the dead, but He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is power. God manifested great power in accomplishing His purpose though hell itself stood in the way. They could not keep Him dead, and they could not keep Him from ascending to the Father's right hand, where so long ago, David prophesied that Jesus would end up. The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What God had planned, though hell stood in the way, God accomplished. That's His power. That's His power. And in verse 19, Paul says that he wants the eyes of our hearts enlightened to understand the greatness of His power toward us who believe. And in verse 22, it says that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So you understand that the power of God that was manifested in the crucifixion, the power of God that was manifested in the resurrection, the power of God that was manifested in the ascension, was oriented toward us. You see, it was for our sake. You see, He gave Christ, He made Christ head, though all hell stood in the way. And He made Him head, as the Scripture says right here, in order to give Him as head to the church. Verse 22. Amazing. Right? So, Christ is crucified, raised, ascended, and reigning at the right hand of the Father for us. Oh, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to know that. Would we get that at a heart level? And again, what we've got to do is bring these things to remembrance. Bring these things before the eyes of our hearts. Meditate on these things. The Christian life is not just merely about intellectual understanding or just getting correct answers to things, but the Christian life. John 17, 3 says, if eternal life is this, to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom He has sent. The essence of eternal life is knowing God. There are two reasons why we need to understand things and get things in our heart. Two reasons that we need to know these things at a heart level. The first reason, or at least the first in the order I'm going to present them to you, maybe not the principal reason, but 
the first reason that I'm going to mention is for sanctification. You see, as we get these things into our hearts, it actually helps us to live differently. Right? Ephesians 4.1, which we'll eventually get to, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, we need to understand the nature of the calling to which we have been called in order to walk in a manner worthy of it. And we have to be motivated to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Right? And so thinking about these things and getting these things at a heart level helps us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. As we grow in our love for God and our appreciation for His gospel and in a zeal for His glory and in an awareness of His love for us and in a sense of His power and in an assurance that He is ruling and reigning above all other powers and authorities. It gives us confidence and boldness and motivation and strength and desire to do the things that God has called us to do. And so for sanctification, we need to understand these things. But secondly, and I've already began to touch on this, we need to know these things at a heart level as an end in itself. The nature of Christianity is to know these things at a heart level. The most fundamental thing that we are actually aiming at is not our sanctification. The most fundamental thing that we are aiming at is simply communion with God. Think about this. In heaven, you will no longer be being sanctified. That process will be complete. You're not going to have sin in heaven. But what you will be doing forever forever, is imbibing these sorts of things more deeply and deeply, coming to a greater awareness of God and His glory. As an infinite being, we can never plumb God's depths. We are finite beings, which means that even in eternity, we can never get to the bottom of who God is, His greatness and His glory. And what we're going to be doing forever, though it's hard to fathom, is entering into deeper and deeper communion with God. Knowing Him more and more truly, more and more purely, loving Him more and more deeply, more and more thoroughly. And, and yes, we will be living in a way that honors Him and in a way that glorifies Him. But just think, think about the fact that knowing God is an end in itself. That's what we're aiming at Sunday by Sunday. Ultimately, when we gather, sanctification is obviously an important aspect of our Christian lives. It's fundamental to Christianity to grow in holiness. But most fundamental, what Christianity is, is communion with God. To be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. To enter into communion with Him. To grow in love for Him. Love for the people around us. To walk with Him, to, to, to know Him. He died, First Peter 4 says, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So understand that when Paul is praying that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, it's not merely because he knows that he's going to get to Ephesians 4.1 and he wants them to understand these things so that they can be sanctified. He's praying as an end in itself that they will get these things into their hearts and enter into deeper fellowship with God. This is what we're aiming at Sunday by Sunday as we gather, is that not only would we have the correct 
information, but that the correct information will work its way into our hearts. Not only so that we can go out and live holy lives and glorify God by the way that we live and the way that we interact with one another. Not only so that we can know how we can help one another grow in sanctification, but just as an end in itself, we gather to worship. We gather here to sing God's praises. We gather here to meditate on His greatness, to delight in Him, to rejoice in Him, to understand intellectually and to see with the eyes of our hearts more and more who God is as an end in itself. As an end in itself. So, I pray these things for us. I pray that we may be further sanctified by having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And I pray that we may have the eyes of our hearts enlightened as an end in itself. I pray that we may grow in the knowledge of and love for God. Enjoyment of Him. Both in order that we may be sanctified and as an end in itself. May we be at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Those who Lloyd-Jones uh, talked about Job 42.5 where Job says, I have heard about you with my ears, but now I see you. Now I see you. And Lloyd-Jones contrasts the hearing of the ears merely with the, but now I see you. Would we be at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, not merely those who have heard about God with our ears, but will we be people who see God with the eyes of our hearts? So, do you know God? Do you know God? Even Christians, right? We can be convicted of these things. I was convicted of these things even as I was preparing this week, just thinking, man, so often I just stop short of really having the eyes of my heart enlightened. And I, I stop at the correct doctrine, or I stop at um, formalism, formality. I stop at just doing the right things. I'm satisfied when I've lived a day in obedience to God, doing the right things, uh, thinking the right things, so on and so forth. And I'm so often I'm just content there. And I was convicted about that because it's like these things need to go into our hearts. Right? So Christians even, do you know God? But unbelievers, if there should be any unbelievers among us, do you know God? This is what is held out in the gospel. Not, not merely, and I don't, of course, mean to diminish it, but not merely that your sins would be forgiven. Not merely that you would learn to live more and more in obedience to God. Not merely that you would understand things properly and make sense of the world in which you live. These are things that happen when you become a Christian. Your sins are pardoned. You learn to live the way that God intended for you. Your life makes a lot more sense. These are, these are things that are part and parcel of Christianity. But what's offered in Christianity is that you would know God. What's offered in Christianity is that you would be reconciled to Him in order to have fellowship with Him. Do you know God? Perhaps you have considered yourself a Christian, and yet, hearing me speak and looking at this passage, you realize that these things are foreign 
to your spiritual experience. Maybe you need to reconsider whether it is, in fact, that you are a Christian or whether you need to enter into this kind of relationship with God for the first time. Do you know God? This is the goal at which we need to aim. This is a goal that we need to keep before our eyes week after week, even as we continue to throw doctrinal logs on the fire week by week. Not hype, not hype, but good, solid, fire-stoking, fire with lots of fuel to burn, but fire that our hearts would get these things, that our hearts would really engage with God in love for Him, that we would really have heartfelt, warm, meaningful relationship with God that grows week by week as we continue to throw logs on the fire as it were.